Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Partners in Health and Biz with your host, Gail Dixon. Tune in every Saturday, 9 a.m. for great shows about obtaining and maintaining health, business, and finance. Learn from the experts. Welcome to Partners in Health and Biz with your host, Wendy Meyeroff. Tune in every Saturday, 9 a.m., for great shows about obtaining and maintaining health, business, and finance. Learn from the experts here at PIHradio.net. Call into the studio with your questions and comments, 347-945-7433. And now, broadcasting from the Partners in Health and Biz studio, here's Wendy. Hi, folks. It is indeed Wendy Meyerhoff. Gail is so popular that sometimes, apparently, her intro comes on first. But Gail Dixon is indeed the founder and the co-host of Partners in Health and Biz every Saturday morning. But today it's me, Wendy Meyerhoff, and I am here with an amazing guest, Linda Fisher, who is Vice President of Product Strategy for Dr. First, which is based in Rockville, Maryland, and we'll tell you a little bit more about this in a second, but let me tell you about what the show is today, and it's got to do with addictions, especially opioids, but we don't ignore the rest of them. The overall addiction here in Maryland on July 1st, the prescribers statewide will need to check the state's prescription drug monitoring program database for prescribing controlled substances. So hooray for Maryland. And we're going to talk about technology. You can call in today, but this is not a crisis helpline, folks. This is a talk show, and we're talking about opioids and the health technology today that's going to help, whether it's mobile apps or whatever. Um, Liz, Linda Fisher is going to tell us more about it in a second. The call-in for guests is 347-945-7433, and I've given that number to Linda Fisher. So, Linda, welcome on, on board. You are Vice President of Product Strategy for the Rockville-based Dr. First, yes? Yes, and good morning. Yes, oh, and, but morning. I'm also a retired CIO of 22 years for a, from a hospital. Oh, Lord, God bless you. Well, I understand the other thing. Uh, Dr. First is the leading provider of e-prescribing and patient medication management solutions, and you have taken a very prominent role in the national fight against opioid addiction, which includes a member of the Opioid Task Force of what's called the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives, which we call, as an abbreviation, CHIME. And CHIME is advocating for the federal government to become more involved in dealing with this crisis, the opioid crisis, and I'm sure addiction in general, right? Exactly. And uh, they're working on both the state and federal level, and they're following all the regulations and bills that are before Congress and the Senate. Yeah. Uh, I understand that the gap by... I, pulled something off online um, it's from a group called the Scattergood Foundation. And according to their 2017 America's Opioid Epidemic, it noted that even with Obamacare, and we know how Obamacare is being trounced right now, but it said, and I quote, 
The gap between the need for treatment and the number of people served is huge. In addition, existing coverage is in peril if states are permitted to choose what Medicaid services to cover. And if Medicaid is lost to over 20 million Americans, including an estimated 2 million with substance abuse disorders. So uh, substance use disorders, I end the quote. It's, it's, it's scary. Uh, so why hasn't this been resolved yet? Uh, we've been talking about a lack of collaboration. What, what is happening? Very briefly, Linda, because we want to talk about Dr. First, but give us a little bit of background on the opioid issue. Well, I, I think the main, one of the major issues and why it hasn't been identified uh, quicker than it should have been is because the, the substance abuse um, patient didn't fit the mold of what the physician thought an addicted person was. And the per, for the patient, the stigma that was attached to becoming addicted to these opioids was so great that they didn't seek help. So for a long time, it went on with everybody pretending there was no issue. And you just told me an interesting story about a doctor, and I think it was a parent who was like 83. Um, tell, tell, tell the audience that very quick note you just gave me a couple of minutes ago. Yes, I was a guest speaker at an opioid symposium uh, along with this physician whose 83-year-old father went in for knee surgery and became addicted to the opioids. Um, yeah, and I mean... Go ahead, Wendy. Oh, no, you, you continue, Linda. No, so that patient would never have fit what a, an, um, a physician would have thought in an addicted patient or an addict uh, profile. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we don't think about I've been writing about the senior market in this country for 20 years. It's called Boomers and Beyond, uh, a lot of what I do, and... Uh, I know, I forget the exact number because I start losing track of numbers, but it's something like the average adult 65 and older is automatically already on five medicines a day, something like that, between their blood pressure, their cholesterol, very often nowadays with diabetes, and whatever else. And so um, it's bad enough if you're just on the one Opioid, God help you, but you start mixing it in, and if your patient is, uh, my daddy was the generation, you do not question the doctor. So the doctor hands you something, and you say, oh, okay, fine, and uh, uh, <laughs> the doctor doesn't know anything's gone wrong. It's a, it's a very, very dangerous issue with seniors uh, on top of everybody else. You have to understand something. The physicians in the 90s were told to manage pain. Uh, CMS made pain the fifth vital sign. Oh. Hospitals and uh, the medical community was told you had to alleviate pain. Mm -hmm. uh, that it, these painkillers were non-addictive. So it was easier to write a 30-day script 
and send the patient out with that script and have them come back every seven days for a new script if they needed it. And patients, as you said, said, well, my doctor gave me this. I mm-hmm. have to take it. Right. And once pain has been alleviated, it's far easier to become addicted to the opioids. So the length of those prescriptions contributed to it. Well, the funny thing is um, one of my favorite shows is the very old show Golden Girls, which goes back something like 30 years, and they did some amazing uh, shows and one of them was where the Betty White character, Rose, um, the girls find out by accident that Rose has been taking a painkiller for something like 30 years. She hurt herself as a teenager on the farm, and the doctor prescribed it. And back in that day, they just kept automatically refilling it. And uh, one day, her drugs got uh, dropped accidentally, and she says, oh, don't worry, it's no problem. And they show her the next day screaming, yelling, losing her temper until she gets her prescription back. And then she's nice and calm, and no, I'm not addicted. And so this is 30 years ago, and that it's taken us this long to even talk about it. But anyway, let us get to the tech side (laughs) before we both just stick to the opioid crisis. So I started, as I mentioned early, um, on July 1st, the prescribers in Maryland are going to have to do certain things. They're going to have to check the Rx program, the monitoring database. So the one of the things I heard about from Dr. First was to talk about the need for easy access to PDMPs. And the average person, uh, even if there are doctors, and we have doctors and all sorts of experts listening, but... What the devil explain to them again, PDMPs? PDMP is the Prescription Data Monitoring System for the states. It has uh-huh. any controlled substance prescriptions that have been written are in this database. But this database was originally written for law enforcement, not for health care. Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting. And so... Um, do most hospitals have it yet? And even if the hospitals have it, I've been writing about health information technology for something like uh, almost 20 years, whenever Y2K was. Well, yeah, almost 20 years. Good Lord. So um, do the hospitals have this database, and are they connecting with each other? So Sinai can tell um, the VA or who can tell, uh, pick a hospital, St. Agnes, any hospital. You know, how can they uh, interconnect? All right. In Well, the, some states have it where you must go through the state portal, and it's a web ah. address that each physician or prescriber registers for with to access that information, such as New York. In New York, it was called iStop. Ah. However, when you're expecting a prescriber who has a limited number of time with the patient to go to an external database, enter the patient information, and get the, uh, the PDMP information back, it's not happening. Right. So the state of Maryland actually partnered with CRISP, which is the state HIE, to have the uh, PDMP 
accessible <laughs> through CRISP. And then CRISP ah. and MedKai, which is the state's medical association, took it a step further and partnered with Dr. First to give to the physicians and prescribers electronic prescribing tools which puts the PDMP access right within that application and can be done at the same time you're writing the script within the same application. So is this like putting it on an iPad and as the doctor's writing his Rx uh, on a form in the iPad, it will automatically go to the uh, organizing section? It's not a form. They would have to be using an electronic prescription system, uh, which uh. is ours is iPrescribe, which is our mobile app. And when the uh, physician would put my name in as a patient, they would just click the PDMP button if they were planning on writing a controlled substance, and it would return all the information real time. And the prescriber gets credit for having checked the state PDMP. Now, does this just apply to regular doctors, MDs, or if I'm a social worker who's counseling a patient? Because I know we have such a lack of psychiatrists and even psychologists that a lot of times the work is going to social workers. I know a wonderful social worker who does this kind of thing over at Kaiser here in uh, the Woodlawn area of Baltimore. So um, would, would a social worker be able to access this, or they got to have fancy initials after it? Well, social workers have some initials, but still, you know what I mean. It would have to be designated as an agent of a physician or somebody with okay. an NPI and a DEA number. Okay. All right. I know the DEA is the Drug Enforcement Administration. <laughs> you start getting crazed with all the initials and the acronyms and so forth. They can get you bonkers trying to remember what's who doing what with whom and so forth. Anyway, okay. My whole life is acronyms. I can imagine. Uh, so when we say value-based care and that doctors have to do much more with less, uh, again, well, I'm not assuming everybody knows. What is value-based care? Value-based care is instead of getting paid for a procedure or uh, services rendered to a patient, it's based on outcomes, patient outcomes. Oh, Lord, that must um, make So it's a happy. very, very different method of delivering health care than we had in the United States uh, up till recently. Uh, we would treat a patient's visit, everything was episodic. When a patient came in, you treated them for the symptoms and the uh, cause for that visit. Today, right. it's no longer. It's longitudinal care. So all caregivers for that patient have to form a community around that patient, and the patient has to be engaged in their care. Otherwise, we're never going to have positive patient outcomes. Okay, so you, you 
you form a community, which in certain ways is not a bad thing. It's nice when the primary care doctor is talking to the drug counseling social worker who's talking to a dietitian, who's talking to whatever, and they, they pull it together. That's very nice. But how do the mobile tools pull this all together? Well, technology up till now has been all designed around episodic treatment. Everybody has EMRs that are in silos. Right, and so EMRs need... is the electronic medical records, just to make sure everybody... Because I hear EMRs, EHRs, which are the electronic health records, which affect, as far as I know, the same thing. So you never know who's telling yeah. which one. So, okay. EMRs, electronic medical records. Uh, are geared around episodic treatment. They right. are not to share information besides all of the uh, talk about interoperability and we need to get there, <laughs> they haven't yet gotten there. So no. Dr. First does have tools which will share clinical information regardless of the EMR that you're on, EHR that you're on. It okay. also provides tools for secure, secure communication with other clinicians and patients. Okay. So when we say other clinicians, when I worked with one group, they had what was, and this is a decade ago, where people were starting to use the USB. And so they set up a system, and just within um, their senior centers, and the residents could get a USB portal and take it to whoever their doctor was. As long And <laughs> still, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, to have a doctor who had this thing where you could just put your USB portal in, and there it would come up. Hi, Mrs. McGillicuddy is on all these medicines, and here's her allergies and so forth. So whether she was taking it from her primary to her urologist to whatever, that's nice if Mrs. McGillicuddy's bringing you the port, but uh, when you don't have that, you're still not connected. It, it gets us screwy. Right. This is a direct communication that goes from one practice to another, one doctor to another, a PT worker to a physician, and, and it's, it's uh, wanted also to the patient. Okay, and so we'll answer the obvious question. How does having this complete patient medication history contribute to the uh, early identification? That's one of my favorite <laughs> topics. <laughs> okay. Uh, medication history, again, because we did episodic treatment, was kept in your EMR, but you didn't know what meds the patient was getting from an ambulatory center across the street. Right. Uh, you were relying on the patient to give you that information when they came in. Patients are the most unreliable source <laughs> for their own. I can tell you we used to get, I don't know, I take that little blue pill for my blood pressure. Uh-huh. Right. Um, our medication history that we provide is a comprehensive medication history from uh, short scripts feed, payers, uh, pharmacies that we've partnered with, 
um, oh. past medications that the patient has given you. So what happens is your medication feed in your EMRs, because we do partner with the EMRs for this, is wow. far more complete. Far more complete, yeah. Right. That's and good. most medication errors occur from not having a, a good medication history. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can imagine. And, you know, I just mentioned the senior population. I've done a lot of writing about caregiving. So it's really nice if the patient can remember all of this, which, as you just mentioned, they can't usually, and especially as we get older and we're on more medicines or if we're in early onset Alzheimer's uh, and we're lucky if we remember a bunch of other things, let alone our medications, but the caregiver, you know, your daughter, your, your, you know, cousin who is nearby and doesn't mind watching over you. The, uh, and I'm talking about family caregivers, not just other professionals. Uh, it, they don't have the information and they don't know where to find it. Uh, if it's not in a total system where you can just punch in, as I said, Mrs. McGillicuddy's name and it comes up, then, then we're really talking trouble. Yes, I recognized this uh, deficit in 2008 when I was still a CIO, um, and I actually went out. That's how I originally found Dr. First. I partnered with them to receive that medication history at the time wow. of admission for our patients. Yeah, I mean, I worked with a client, and he does um, billing issues related to Alzheimer's specifically. And if the patient kept coming back in and coming back in, and you treated him properly and got him out of the ER, but you didn't get Mr. Stevenson's uh, full history because he forgot certain things and he wasn't carrying his USB port or whatever, then... Um, uh, he came back in and back in and back in, and not only doesn't this help Mr. Stevenson, but it actually ruins your hospital rating because you can't keep people safe and secure. So, uh, and don't get not first for that readmission under if it's under thirty days. Right. So if you uh, if you keep failing, Mr. Stevenson, uh, if you're, if you, uh, God forbid, you don't care so much about Mr. Stevenson as a hospital, but you want to keep your rating good, at the very least, you've got a good reason that way to uh, make sure he stays well. You also have a good reason to ensure that the patient after discharge is adhering to what the medications that they should be taking. Oh, so, yes. We also provide uh, letting you know whether the, the medications have been uh, administered by the drugstore, picked up at, at the drugstore. Ah, okay. So that helps to some degree. And there's still the issue of when they get home because um, I did an article a few years ago for Johns Hopkins where they had discovered, and again, it's a few years ago, but it was something about that the patient's were saying, oh, yes, I understand the instructions, don't worry, it's okay, and they'd get it home, 
and not take it properly. So if they're, you know, whether they're gobbling their opioids or they're doing it cockeyed and so that's not helping them, uh, all sorts of things. It, it's just very That's complex. why our tool to communicate securely with the patient after discharge is so important because uh, that's when the patient will recognize that they really didn't understand the instructions. Uh-huh. Okay, so we gather it all together. Can their family get access to this? If if John Smith can't remember to tell you that he's done everything, but his daughter-in-law is stopping by or calling him or whatever, can uh, the daughter-in-law do the information input for them? Yes, anybody that's authorized by the patient. Okay. Well, that's very good. Also, yeah. another area that I think we excel in is many patients do not pick up their medications because they cannot afford to. Yeah, uh-huh. yes. And you're using our electronic prescribing application. When you prescribe a med, it lets you know the patient's copay for that med with their insurance company. It'll mm. let you know if it's on the formulary for their payer and if there are coupons available to offset the, the cost of the copay. Oh, that's great. That's great because it's been hard enough under all the health care systems we've had and even in all due respect to Obamacare. Um, the Part D drug plan, I had to intervene. I had to interview literally face-to-face Bush 43 at one point. The Part D was just about to come into effect. And they had to admit the Republicans had set this up, and there's a huge reimbursement gap for seniors. You know, I don't remember the exact numbers, but if your prescriptions were up to, let's say, $2,500, you got the 80% uh, reimbursement, and then if it went uh, to 4000 something, they paid for the whole thing. But there's that donut hole, they call it, in the middle, where tough nuggies, you know, you're exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and we don't know what's going to happen now. Uh, the, uh, they'll tell you when you do a study that the primary reason meds aren't picked up is due to the cost of the yeah. copay. Yeah, and so I'm, we're I'm terrified. So we try that medication loop. Safe Yeah. I'm terrified it's about to get worse. We don't know. Uh, when I see my insurance info, because I'm self-employed, um, and we had a show on um, being self-employed, because if you encourage, you have a nurse or a teacher, someone who spent 20 years, signed off, got their pension, they're safe as far as that goes, and they want to have their own business. It's always been their dream. Um, I met one lady at an Epilepsy Foundation conference where she'd been, I think, a teacher and gotten her pension and opened her dream flower shop, and the next thing she knows, uh, she's in a mild, mild car accident, and she's having tons of seizures, and now you're self-employed. How are you supposed to pay for any medicine, let alone um, all these other things? I mean, it's, it's very scary. So these are the things that what Dr. First has done is tried to look at the gaps in our current technologies 
and create solutions to fit those gaps. Okay. Well, we are actually headed to the two-minute countdown, so I want to tell our listeners that there is a website. It's called Before It's Too Late dot Maryland dot gov, and it will give you a lot of information on what the state, at least, is doing. Um, and if you're concerned, and I hope you are concerned, especially if you're among our health professionals listening, that whether you look at doctor first, whether you try and find any solution that will work within your state for the patients, because remember, these are not terrible people mm-hmm. just want to rob homes. <laughs> you know, these are good, yeah. solid citizens. Um, they said in Maryland, uh, this has been a problem in the inner city for years. Now that it's affecting the suburban communities, people want to do something about it. And that means I've got to thank uh, Linda Fisher, the Vice President of Product Strategy for Dr. First, based here in Rockville, Maryland. Uh, I can't tell you what fun this has been. Fun but sad at the same time, right, Linda? (laughs) Same thing. I do want to mention one thing very quickly. There is um, a bill before both Senate and Congress to make e-prescribing of controlled substances mandatory on a federal level for all Medicare, Medicaid patients, and that bill is going to pass. Okay, well, thank God. I thank Linda Fisher again. This is Wendy Meyeroff of Partners in Health and Biz, the Biz co-anchor. Don't forget to look us up uh, online, whether it's Blog Talk Radio or our Screamers show, folks, and our Partners in Health and Biz website. Um, If you have any ideas or you need information, contact Partners in Health at verizon.net, or you can reach me at wjmeyeroff at gmail.com for WM Medcom. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye.